Hello and welcome to Sheridan Worldwide's podcast series, Brilliance Realized. And with this episode, we have our eyes firmly fixed on the future of work. My name is Catherine Delapore. I'm a coach, a digital anthropologist, and I work at the intersection of culture, technology, and data. Today, our topic for discussion is why purpose matters. And we're going to explore what it means to be a purpose-led organization. Consider what's stopping CEOs and their boards moving away from business as usual. And we're going to define the first steps leaders need to take to reorientate towards purpose and by so doing unleash sustainability, people and planet. I'm joined today by a very special guest. Dr. Victoria Hearth works across a range of executive and academic roles at the Cambridge Institute for Sustainability and is a visiting fellow at Cambridge Judge Business School. She is an expert in defining and operationalizing purpose-driven organizations and supports leaders and their organizations to become the driving force for long-term well-being for all, aka sustainability. Welcome, Victoria. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine. Let's start with um, a question that may be on the mind of our audience, which is, what do we mean when we talk about sustainable business? Yeah, and you'd think after all these years, that might be a question that we weren't asking anymore. But actually, I think this is the time we need to ask it more than ever, um, because I, I believe that we have gone on a journey of exploring what that means for us. And, and that's necessary. And it's an important part of of any concept, especially one that is going to become a sort of a guiding force, you might say. However, we have come to the point where I believe we are saying this, those, particularly those that have spent quite some time wrestling with it, um, we are saying the same thing in a slightly different way. And we are realizing, because we've now moved from the, the, the what are we talking about to the how do we do it? And in the how, the failings of the clarification of what it is become even more apparent. Because if we're going to build accountability around sustainable business, we can't, you know, and that comes hand in hand with the how, then we can't do that until we're really clear what it is that we mean. So I think that's kind of where we are now. And I think we're at the point of being able to articulate that consensus. And so for me, having spent the last sort of 20 odd years observing and really trying to uh, synthesize what I see is that consensus that's emerging. I think an important step has been made recently in terms of saying that this is ultimately about well-being. Uh, now we can we have questions around that, of course, as philosophers back to the very early of human thinking have done. What do we mean by a good life? You know, what is a eudaimonia? As in, you know, if we're talking about a, a sort of good life in the sense of not necessarily happiness, not necessarily he hedonistic, but but genuinely living a good life. You know, that is the ultimate point. And as society, we'll never have a definitive answer because it is our ultimate question. But nonetheless, we can create a, a term that we put it in 
Um, and then say, okay, so so if that's what it is, we'll call it something else, but let's just call it well-being. Um, and I see consensus growing around that. And it's not well-being for just some people. It's well-being for everybody, including future generations. So that is also a key, key message. Uh, and it's not just for now, you know, well, and, and, and obviously saying it's for future generations as well encompasses that, uh, but it's it's to be sustained over the long term. So I think that that's really important. If we go back to the Brundtland definition of which that uses the language of needs, needs being the way in which well-being is created. That's one way of thinking about well-being is that the satisfaction of needs, fundamental human needs leads to well-being. So so and and it was about for everyone it was about in the long term so we see that happening at the sort of national level we see this language coming in everywhere now um slightly different way but all but basically saying the same thing and i, I think we have an issue in that i think the fact that the un decided to call sdg3 health and well-being uh, and not be clear what they mean by that and why that isn't a superordinal issue, but is down at that level. You know, health is a means to well-being, but yet they put those on those same category. I think that's caused a lot of potential issues in this consensus building. I hope we will see the language in the UN changing around that soon, um, because with my international colleagues, that comes up as a point of debate, for example, when developing ISOs. Can we use the term well-being? if the UN isn't yet using it, even though the reason it's not using that is not a solid one. Um, but I'd say in every other domain, we see this coming through. And what's important about that is then if we can say sustainable business is businesses that contribute strategically. And I say strategically because organizations are people coming together for a reason, not for everything, for some contribution. So if, if businesses that are whose purpose, whose reason to exist is a strategic contribution to long-term well-being for all. If we can ground that, then we can start better uniting our energies to achieve that goal. But to do that, I think we're on the cusp of that. Um, and, you know, again, doesn't matter what language we use, if those are the concepts that we're that what we mean. And when we say sustainability, we don't just mean financial sustainability. When we say sustainability, we don't just mean the environment. When we say sustainability, we don't just mean keeping things going, uh, which is used in a way to say that somehow sustainability is different to restorative. You know, I would say no. I mean, let's not chuck out sustainability in order to get around a concept of um, you know, restoration and, and being restorative, because being restorative as far as I understand it, is, the, is a way in which we achieve sustainability, i.e. we achieve long-term well-being for all. And if we, I think this pitting of concepts rather than organizing the relationship between these core concepts in order to help us to see what's the goal and what's the strategy and where does the debate need to happen and where actually have we already got consensus and we really shouldn't be wasting time, you know, overly on those sorts of, uh, those sorts of, guidelines and frameworks I suppose that's really helpful long-term well-being for all that's what I've taken away from your answer to that question and, and I'd just like to actually clarify within that because we had an interesting you'll see in the the uh which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point the 
the British standard in purpose-driven organizations. Um, and we had a debate around that because, of course, when I, I like for all because it means it's very encompassing. It doesn't lock down for whom is all, which means that it could be anthropocentric if that is your ethical framework. But if your ethical framework is that the intrinsic value of nature is equal to humans, and therefore you mean all in terms of human and non-human life or species and what, you know, and, and this is where we get to that end point in a way of, of our ethical foundation. So, so it, it's, 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 it's broad. However, when we were talking about this within the steering group, bringing in um, the fantastic uh, sort of normative definition of what the purpose of an organization should be, Colin Mayer's um, uh, profitable solutions to people and planet, um, bringing, which, which doesn't specify what the nature of the problem is, whereas long-term well-being for all is clear about the nature of the goal and therefore the problem, bringing those two things together is where we landed. And of course, it's the PAS draft, the PAS 808 is this British standard in purpose-driven organizations. It's out for public comment. And you'll see there that the definition is long-term well-being for all people and planet. So all is still in there to say it's not just some people, you know, really locking down that equity bit, but also being clear that actually this is and should be. So there's an ought in there that this should not just be anthropocentric. And I think that is also as well a big, bold step. So let's see what comes back in terms of the public comments. Thinking about the people listening to this podcast, they're all senior leaders. It's very likely that they are sort of in their 40s and above. They've grown up in a system where certain uh, measures have been their bread and butter. So. Has GDP and profit had its day? Well, and I think the last part of what you said there is critical. Profit has definitely not had its day. I'd say it's about to come into its own true role. Um, I mean, the fact that we have for-profit and not-for-profit organisations, I mean, just resting for a moment on those concepts, what do we really mean by that? Because all organisations need financial revenue be it from a donor, be it from a, you know, and, and these days in complex multiple forms, right? So we know that profit is critical for all organizations. So what we really mean when we say for profit is for profit maximization and not for profit maximization. So I think we have to uh, think carefully about um, absolutely not in any way diminishing the role of financial capital in making a business run. And as a liquid transferable resource, which makes it incredibly powerful in relation to or alongside other types of capitals and value, because ultimately liquid stuff that you can transfer from one capital to another, it has an additional value in transferability. Uh, but nonetheless, it is a derived or intermediate capital. It, it is only have value because we say it has value uh, and it is a form of transfer. Now, the same is true when so when we think about profit maximization and when we think about GDP, the important thing, and this is something that's really clarified for me over the last sort of five to 10 years, and um, which you'll see present in a lot of my writing, is the fact that 
it seems that we're really clear now, I would say, as society, the nature of where we've gone wrong basically where we've gone wrong. Now, of course, it's complex. There's lots of stuff happening. And I'm not trying to in any way in anything I say diminish the complexity. But nonetheless, we we as humans need to simplify. And there are some things that stand out as being real levers. And the role of over financialization of our systems and our understanding of success is absolutely core. Cool to the issues that we face. But let's let me say that in a little bit more detail. The reason I would say that we overvalorize finance, be that profit, be that GDP, or any other measure of financial income, essentially, is because we have over the last 50, 60, 70 years kind of gone lock, stock, and barrel down a route of assumptions about the best way to produce long-term well-being for all. So economics 101 is that the point of the economy is to create well-being for society as a whole. And the way we organize that, that's why I think, you know, we've got to be careful when we talk about issues of, you know, the, the economy is in the issue. The economy is not the issue. It's the, the form of the economy that we happen to have. And the form of, let's call it business as usual, um, obviously highly informed by Friedmanism, highly informed by certain ways of thinking about Adam Smith's um, uh, wealth of nations, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we have created ourselves this framework, this paradigm, because it, it, it all works really simply. That has, And that's really the point of it. It has simplified our ability to make decisions. Life is complex. Running a business is not easy. And so you can see why we went lock, stock and barrel into this idea that actually, if we allow business to focus on financial income, then the theory is, if you have the right kind of market that works in the right kind of way with the right kind of actors acting in their self, their financial self-interest, or in the case of consumers, their utility uh, self-interest in a rational way, then the allocation of resources transformed by business and allocated into society will be optimized. Because, and, and essentially what that means is that and, and this is why it links very, very strongly with the freedom agenda is that if you are, you know, a rational person in the marketplace, you can make the best judgment about what's good for your well-being. It's not for companies to think about. It's not for them to, to, to try to manipulate, certainly, because that would be anti-free market. And it's not up to companies to try to, uh, to therefore even try to understand it. What they need to do is to understand what people are buying and demanding. And if they do that, and critically, if they do that, in mind, being very mindful of competition. So the role of competition within this economic business as usual setup is very much to provide a dampening force to the role of self-interest. So if a company is acting in their own financial interest, so which means their reason to exist is ultimately to capture financial income for the market, there are obviously huge risks to that, which we now understand how big those risks are. But the idea being that competition would provide a, a sort of counterbalancing force so that ultimately everyone would win. Now, that means, and in that system, if you're a consumer purchasing your well-being from the marketplace, as long as you have the right information, the only real constraint, the major constraint to you maximizing your well-being is your income. So 
not only is is it good for companies now i'm ignoring the whole uh, you know the fact that shareholders are part of the company and its self interest includes you know shareholders it's this idea that focusing on your growth and your profit maximization uh, is a good is a morally good thing um because you are you and you are not taking the role of government this is very much the freedom freedman doctrine you're not taking the role of government of judging what's good for society society does that in two ways it does it through the democratic process and it does it through deciding what it buys in the marketplace so this idea that that's where true freedom lies and that companies therefore have their you know that their remit scoped out now what that has meant is that we have not just encouraged but we have we have structured and uh we have um sort of built walls around business decision making to say that the ultimate goal of the economy long term wellbeing for all is actually not just out of scope but actually off limits it's not it's not the role of a business which means that the idea that what companies are producing is actually leading to wellbeing is optimal for wellbeing is optimal for wellbeing in the long term is 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 really not not the role of the business to check so then you would think well then it surely it's the role of government or society to check that and this is where you get the issue of gdp overlaid onto the issue of profit maximization because essentially and you could call it the biggest failure of governance ever really because what's happened is that rather than saying well yeah okay and cousins who introduced gdp said mm, you know be really careful of using this as a, as an actual measure of success of the economy because you're going to go down the wrong road but that's ultimately what happened it's it's like well gdp is a proxy measure that the well-being for all in the long term is going to be created so we don't really have to worry about measuring the ends we just we just measure gdp and if that's going in the right direction then all is good so ultimate uh, ends of the economy out of the line of sight of both government and of business decision making and of course the ultimate means to the economy i.e. all the social and environmental systems were also out of scope because a the system was focused on financial measures which meant there wasn't really an incentive to look beyond that and also because if there were issues with that again government should be picking those up so you know so why would you be looking at them and so the ultimate means and the ultimate ends have been out of the sight of decision making of the central force that takes resources on behalf of society and turns them into something that contributes to long-term well-being for all and neither the means nor the ends have been there's been no accountability either at the business level or at the uh, government level so putting all of that together i mean how could we not have ended up where we are i mean it's almost impossible that we wouldn't have <laughs> absolutely and your point about there have been no incentives is very interesting because of course that phrase you get the behaviors you reward is clearly has played out here um what would you say to a ceo or an exec team listening today who who have got caught up in this paradigm this old paradigm of the 20th century um where they're focused very much on short term thinking and uh, profit maximization um at all costs what are what are the risks for them continuing to operate in the way that they've always operated hmm well uh i mean firstly to say we have all been and are all 
uh, indoctrinated to a large degree around this 20th century economic system. It's not an issue of business. It's an issue, issue of all organizations, institutions, and society as a whole. So I think we all have to, even if we think that we get it. I mean, I speak to seasoned sustainability professionals. When I first, you know, sort of use the language of purpose, you can see us sort of feel uncomfortable inside because it's like, yeah, but what about profit? You know, like the question you asked me. And it's not really, it doesn't come from the head. It comes from this kind of emotional response that oh my gosh that's but that's like so radical that's so anti-business and and actually it's not you know it's it's actually then saying okay so profit is a means to an end etc etc so I think we are all uh, have a lot of work to do to to understand our assumptions that sit below the surface to excavate them and work with them in order to move forward so that's the first thing I'd like to say um and then the second thing I'd say is well okay so what are the risks to the kind of way of thinking that I was just outlining. Um, well, firstly, it's complete potential destruction of the future of uh, humanity on planet Earth and all life with it. You know, I mean, that is essentially what the data is telling us and all of the ecological uh, um, uh, collapse, which is about how we use the energy. So I think that's the next big thing we're going to have to really grasp. We talk about nature-based solutions. We we talk the language of climate and then we add in nature, uh, but we're not really being very rational looking at planetary boundaries that tell us that actually biodiversity is way farther off the chart of, of having broached those limits than climate change is, uh, and that it's going to be more complex to deal with, you know, and that it's relatively simple to switch an energy source. It is not easy to change everything about how we use the energy in terms of transforming the world around us. So I just think, you know, that's also something to note. Um, but the risk for business leaders is that the system whereby society has been complicit with business and with government in saying, yeah, let's just simplify life. Let's extract and transform the world around us without due consideration of what we're doing and due consideration of the effects. And that all worked while we were all complicit in that. And we have clung on for as long as we can, despite the data being big and hard and fast, and we're still not really facing that data properly. Um, but now that's changing and it's changing fast and it has to change fast. And I would say the reason I'm not a futurist but it's not difficult for me to foresee, and it wasn't difficult to foresee where we are now, 10, even 10, 15 years ago. Because once you understand the nature of what we have put into motion and what we're doing, that, those are the big forces. Those are the mega forces that are going to influence everything we do. So if you're a leader and you get to grips with those, you, you're going to be able to see the direction of travel and you can see where it's going to go and will go quickly. So if you're not doing that, then essentially what you're doing is putting your head in the sand, literally put it, keeping your head in the middle of Daly's triangle, you might say, focusing on that sort of myopic. It'll be OK as long as we placate our stakeholders we will be fine. The reality is very complex to put sticking plasters on every single issue as it arises when we're in systemic crisis. If you don't face full on, head on the nature of the issues that we face and take a hyper-innovative, hyper-purpose-driven, I would argue, because I don't think we'll get the level of innovation that, and, and the level of 
productivity, you might say, behind the nature of the issues we face, unless it's purpose driven. Um, and we can go into that in a little bit more uh, in a minute. But I think unless you are operating at that kind of blank sheet paper thinking, the risks are that you are just not going to survive either as a leader, because your stakeholders won't allow you to, um, and be that through law or be that through soft measures. Um, and your business is going to suffer uh, massively because of that. Yes. Well, um, two things come to mind. Number one, a McKinsey report that I read, I think it was from last month, November 2021, puts sustainability at the number one of things that CEOs are now concerned about. So, you know, there is some hope, you know, when McKinsey starts writing about this stuff that perhaps, um, you know, their influence will filter through. Um, but I'm also interested kind of going back to this, this idea of, you know, that we're existing in this with old school mental modes. Um, specifically, what do you, in, in the conversations that you've had with, with people, what are the kind of major assumptions that people are making that are stopping them from moving forward and, you know, ripping everything up and having that blank sheet of paper in front of them? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, there are lots of things that are stopping that. Um, but we know that culture starts with worldviews and that starts with base assumptions about what is valuable how the world works and therefore what is the best way to protect that value so i think and that's where i try and start and 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 try and draw people's attention to because if not then you know and we know from the work of donella meadows on this and systems thinking if you don't get down to that level ultimately you'll face you know really difficult barriers but you won't necessarily be able to articulate why they exist so at that level of base assumptions i think just like we were talking about profit and the role of profit i don't think that we have really sat with um, the assumptions we have about the role of profit, about what money is, about the role that it plays, about what a good business is, um, about how we've tied our identities to a certain idea about what a good business is, and that just saying you make money and contribute jobs, regardless of whether those are good jobs, long-term jobs, meaningful jobs, you know, I mean, it's those are the two ways, essentially, in which people get financed to purchase their well-being from the market. So unless you really, you know, face that level of assumption that you have, um, and then think how that might look different, I think it's going to be hard um, to move forward. And connected with that, I, and this is why I write a lot about this kind of topic, because I think if you go back to that sort of um, neoliberal doctrine, I mean, that's a very amorphous term. I think business as usual captures it because we all actually know what we mean and we can take it down to that sort of neoclassical economics. But then that's been hybridized and ideological eyes. That's not a word <laughs> by um uh, but by by governments in the system that that benefits from from this, you get a lot of the issues that we face. For example, assuming that people are self interested, you know, and, and, and connected with that is this idea that humans are innately, you know, selfish and that we'll take what we can. And you know, to the extent that I mean, if we think about the average business, that that encompasses and embodies that set of assumption throughout the whole recruitment reward system engagement everything everything so um so this these are embedded in what i would call 
you know, cultural software, the heart of, of software, which is also manifested in cultural hardware. Um, so, yeah, this idea of self-interest and this idea of rationality. Um, and that's why I love the work, like, you know, the book, uh, uh, Rutger Bergman, I think his name is, uh, Humankind, you know, and we've got a lot of this now sort of countering. And to be honest, over the decades, all the academic disciplines and, and, and people like yourselves, coaches have been noticing the ridiculousness in a way of how we treat humans in a, in a business environment, which is really not utilizing what we understand about humans. So why is that the case? Well, it's because actually, you know, um, we've been told that that's the way that the market works best. And it's much easier to get humans to try to fit the model than get a model that can reflect the complexity of humanity, which is the only way I can really explain why we would have gone down this route. Um, if we think about marketing, which is really at the heart of an organization's uh, value generation system, and we think about the fact that, uh, and, and most people in organizations are marketers, even if they don't call themselves that. If we think that we've come from a position where an organization will intervene in the market and therefore in people's lives, shaping people's identities and cultures, but because the, the sort of business as usual doctrine says that for a free market to operate, organizations must not intervene and must not manipulate people's preferences. To do that would be completely anti-market. In fact, it would literally break down, the whole system would break down if companies started to admit that actually they were manipulating how people purchased in the marketplace. Because suddenly that link between the market and well-being generation would be broken. Now, a lot of people might not realize even that that's that doctrine, but what they will realize, and Rory Sutherland said this very well when he said, I'd rather be evil than a bad marketer. He was, he was kind of saying to the industry, why, let's just admit it, you know, People think that marketing manipulates and no one's willing to say that, that, that they don't manipulate. But I'd rather say that I manipulate because that, that's what makes me a good marketer. What was important about what he was saying was that there was he was calling out what was the unsaid. And that unsaid is that organizations do manipulate society very consciously, but they can never say it. And because they can never say it, and because people who are bought into business as usual can't say that they do it, because otherwise this sort of emperor's new clothes will all collapse. And therefore there is huge power, especially in this postmodern world where our identities are formed around what we consume, huge power and no responsibility. Because to take that responsibility means accepting that that is the reality. So that's another way, back to your question about the assumptions that stop us moving forward. When we then start to say, oh, right, now, actually, you know, say genuinely, we want to be a force for sustainability. Oh, my gosh, one of the biggest influences we have is over our customers and our other stakeholders and our interactions with them, be that product design, the way we price things, and especially very significantly the communications and promotions we do, there will be a reticence to engaging in that kind of um, uh, dialogue, more than dialogue, shaping of society, because let's call it for what it is. You're an anthropologist, you know what I mean. We understand that the world is constructed. And so if the world is constructed, but business has been pretending it isn't, then of course, what you have when we move to sustainability is not taking the power that exists. So we have to have this sort of cathartic moment in a way where we 
excavate those assumptions and we put them on the table and we say, this is, this is wrong. This one doesn't work. Let's, let's replace this with something that we think does work, but let's not be too quick to stick it under the surface again. Let's, let's hold it up there for debate and, and, and accountability. So we have to, I'd say, take these assumptions, understand them and give them accountability so that we don't get stuck again in this system of 50, 60 years of getting to literally the brink of humanity collapsing because we haven't bothered to check our assumptions and check whether they're delivering what we think they should be. And I love that idea of bringing them to the surface and saying them out loud, because, of course, so much of our thinking is unconscious. Um, Working as a coach, that's that's the world I work in. I think, you know, look, economists have finally got, got their head around the fact that humans are not logical and rational. And isn't that why they invented behavioral economics? Um, because they finally realized that actually the, the marketers were right all along. But even if we put all of that to one side and just think about it from a, a logical, rational perspective, we know that something like $68 trillion um, is about to change hands in the next 25 years. So even if you are a hard-nosed businessman or woman and you say, okay, um, where's our next consumer? Let's Let's kind of walk into the future and understand where our next kind of consumer is coming from. They're not the baby boomers anymore, are they? The baby boomers are walking out the door, stage left, and a whole new generation is coming through. And those ge- that younger generation is far more interested in um, consuming in a way that is sustainable. And that also equates to how they want to invest their money, which is the whole impact investing. Um, so I think for all of those reasons, um, saying it out loud um, is, is going to really help us and having those kind of honest, frankly, profound conversations about what it means to be successful. Um, I mean, ultimately, is that what we're asking people to do, to reimagine success? It's a hard one to answer and because I, I don't think we are... We need better clarity about what we already know. I think we already know what real success is. I think we've been blocked in terms of being able to express it clearly. Um, I think what we know to be true and what we often say, because it sounds right, um, you know, and this is where I do think that what the paradigm shift we're going in at the moment is going to unblock an awful lot of things for an awful lot of people in ways that we can't even begin to understand at the moment, because we really have tried to fit into homus economicus, you know, as a society, you know, we, we really have tried to play that game and it's been so you know, profoundly uh, altering for, and not just the Western world. And this is another thing that's, you know, it's like, well, you can say that's for the Western world, but no, this has been one of our biggest exports, you might say, as the Western world, uh, is this certain way of thinking, uh, particularly about business. Um, And I'd say also, it's a lot more than, than, than economists talking about behavioral economics, you know, that was after years and years and years of research, finally, they could not, you know, certain economists with certain ways of thinking that had literally, these, this was beyond the sort of, you know, do we really have to bring this stuff in? And, and of course, Daniel Kahneman and his, his team were able to get some acknowledgement of that. But this is beyond nudge, you know, this is well beyond nudge. And I think, and, and there's decades of amazing research that could be brought in 
if we can kind of unleash ourselves, and that's the thing, unleash ourselves, not just tweak, not just make a little adjustment, but really unleash ourselves to in order to understand and articulate really what that success looks like. Like I said, it was always there. You know, long-term well-being for all really was always the ultimate end. That always was success, but we gave a proxy measure for success. And then we started to forget that there was something beyond that. And that became the success. And it never felt quite right if I anything to go by, you know, everyone that I'm talking to. And you only have to ask someone what's on the surface, even if they say they're driven by money. It's like, yeah, but why? And of course, you'll always get an answer beyond money because money is just a symbolic good. So, you know, I think we we are on the cusp of really rediscovering what a good life means, because we'll now actually be trying to achieve it rather than some subversive proxy measure, which has a role to play, but a role. So thinking about coming back to the why be a purpose-driven organization, and you've been absolutely brilliant at kind of creating the context and why, why this is happening, but um, thinking on a more practical level about um, becoming a or becoming a purpose-driven organization um, and the first steps perhaps that people can take towards orienting towards a purpose-driven organization, what advice would you give? Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, there's a lot of uh, good research out there about, you know, different steps and uh, obviously the CISL Unleashing the Sustainable Business in part two, there's a a list of of kind of steps, including, I'd say, really importantly, uh, pre-purpose as a sort of, as in preparation. And and I think that's the thing that I would really emphasize. Uh, Going on a purpose-driven journey is something we should hold as being a very sort of precious uh, step it doesn't mean you have to have everything sewn up before going on that journey in a public way. In fact, it is a journey of discovery and you need your stakeholders with you. But that therefore means that you need to be in a position to be able to be open and honest enough with your stakeholders. You need to know who they are. You need to have good enough relationship that they will trust what you say enough to go on that journey with you. You need to know that you've got the leaders that can be brave and vulnerable in the way that they lead that are good communicators you know so uh, if you don't have some of those key things in play I'd say put yourself in a pre-purpose phase don't start using the term because a you're going to make it really hard for yourself because you'll have kind of already uh, used up some of those uh, that possibility with your stakeholders you will already have kind of Uh, made it more difficult for yourself if you start to use the term purpose and then do it really, really, really badly. Um, So I would say knowing when to is, is, is the first stage. And to do that, you need to know the nature of what it is you're actually doing. And that's why the work that I'm trying to do sort of just expressing what I hear all around me in terms of the nature of the paradigm shift. So purpose is about going from financial income to well-being outcomes as and and therefore impact on society as your reason to exist it's not something you know it's not one of your many reasons to exist or you know and that you that can be part of a journey but that's not the end goal Uh, it's not doing good things that are ultimately in order to finance you know maximize your financial income 
And so being clear about that and therefore the fact that this is a different way, is this, this, this relates to a different way of thinking about the economy. This is aligned, purpose is aligned to a well-being economy. It has a different set of fundamental economic assumptions with it, therefore, because you, you feel the way that you understand the market, the role of the market, the way it operates. Um, and, and as you know, that's in purpose part to the uh, in unleashing the sustainable business goes into that sort of yeah you might use the same terms but you'll mean them in a different way so i'd say reading as much as you can about the nature of the journey you're about to embark on and being really honest with yourself about where do you really want to go do you want to go there if you really do and you think you really can go there and then plot out that path because that's that path you're going to have to take your stakeholders on so unless you're clear somehow about the nature of the journey you're on you're not going to be able to communicate it if you're not going to be able to communicate it you're not to start that journey so to speak so i would say that is probably the first step and related to that and drawing together everything we've just talking talked about really ask very deeply what are your worldviews you know what are the base assumptions you have about what is valuable to produce in the world how the world and how that value is under threat and how the world works or doesn't work and then ask yourself about those around you and those in your organization and about the culture both and therefore that has arisen from that because if you can understand the worldviews of your organization your real worldviews not those that are written down on a value statement because that might or might not reflect it but really what does the organization value and that will be encoded in all of your your software, uh, symbols, stories, you know, assumptions, and in your, your hardware, your systems, your processes, et cetera, et cetera. If you can be really frank about that, then you'll know, you know, how, how big the journey is and, and how what it's going to take. And then related to that, where are your stakeholders? Who are your stakeholders? And where are their worldviews? Because even if you have the intent to go on this journey, if you have powerful stakeholders that are so far away from where you are, the chances that you're going to be able to do that are, are much slimmer. And it doesn't mean you can't, and you can certainly placate certain stakeholders in certain ways or, or sort of work out a way through. And of course, you can take stakeholders on a journey, but you need to know the nature of that. And then you need to have some kind of strategic plan about how you will you know, move your stakeholders with you. Because if you don't do that sort of base work, the issue is that you put yourself, two, two big risks arise. Firstly, that um, that you, you fail on your journey, you have to backtrack, and then you make life uh, much more difficult to yourself, uh, for yourself. And, you know, BP's journey, for example, is an, is an example of that. And they're picking up those pieces and they're going on that journey again. Um, but I, I'm sure that that is more difficult than had they never gone on that journey before uh, and good luck to them on that because it's critical for all of us um, but the other one is that you, you you basically fall into the trap of purpose washing which means that there is a disconnect between what you mean to do and what you're actually doing and if you fall into that situation then you can really damage your reputation beyond just a failed purpose-driven journey um, and so I would say yeah so that level of honesty which you'll need throughout your purpose-driven journey is the place to start. I'm just going to wrap this conversation up um, with a question about leadership and the role that leaders play in unleashing sustainable business. 
but more specifically thinking about um, this relationship between purpose and trust. And critically, I've heard you use the word ethics and ethical, ethical culture. Does that really mean that we're looking for a very different type of leader now to take us through the 21st century? Are we looking for leaders with moral courage? Is that, is that the profile of the CEO that, that the world now needs? I'd say that is a good description, uh, for sure. I think the best way, and again, this is where there is huge value in genuinely understanding where we've come from, because then we can understand the nature of the journey. Uh, um, if we imagine in this sort of this myopic, simplified system that we created for business decision making that I outlined earlier, where you can not have to worry about the health of the means, really, you don't really have to understand the implication on well-being really and long-term well-being for all and you really just can count your mostly your financial and manufactured capital and your decision making is short term so that's what and I, you know i've studied undergraduate in management sciences you know I, you know and, and i'm an academic in business uh for, for a, half of my time at least so i know that that is pervasive that idea of optimizing for that system is 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 really pervasive so what leadership means when we're optimizing for that when that is so different to where we need to go to where you're fully understanding the complexity of all of your dependencies and the health of social and environmental systems is something not for the scientists you know it's something we need leaders to understand and to be able to make decisions against or at least know where to find the information and who the experts they need and 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 leaders who are working for long-term well-being for all not just completely out of the line of sight and to do it in the long term and not in the short term. So in on almost all key variables, in a way, we're talking about an entirely different set of leadership uh, traits and not assuming that people are selfish and unleashing people's, you know, purposeful orientation and, you know, un being able to admit that you don't have the answers because a lot of the answers are unknowable. Uh, but for sure, even if it's a lot are unknowable, a lot might be knowable, but they are not going to be knowable by one person sitting in a room working on a spreadsheet. They are going to be much more likely to be knowable by having a 360 degree, degree view of your system, which involves bringing all stakeholders to the table, not just because it's the right thing to do, but because you're not going to be able to make right decisions without it. So, on almost every count, we're talking about something different. And I'd say probably one of those key things when we bring it down to purpose is that this is not about a leader standing at the front having the answers. It's very comfortable for us as human beings. And there's some great research on the evolutionary perspective on leadership, why we look to certain people to lead, because even in an evolutionary perspective, you know, when you're threatened with a short term near threat to the survival of your group, you want someone who will literally go into, as, as someone said to, to today, sort of commander zone, uh, you know, commander mode. And that's not to say that sometimes we don't need commander mode, but that is not the modus operandi. I mean, that is, you know, for instances of short term threat, what we really need is to be clear about the 
overarching set of outcomes and impacts that we want to create. Be really clear about those ends, to be really clear about red lines and flaws around the limits and and what healthy systems look like and the role of the organization, what a fair contribution to all those is. And then the mode, the manner in which we want to deliver these ends and secure the health of these means in the process. So ends, means, and mode. And that's really very much in that British standard that's out for comment. And, and so a leader that can do that and take themselves out of the limelight, encourage people not to look to them for answers, but to trust that they have the answers as long as they are immersed in their system and as long as they're clear about what they're working for. So purpose becomes that invisible leader, but that's made tangible and is given real weight and meaning by leaders. But that does require leaders to be able to know, yes, sure, when they have to moments of transition, moments of, 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 of crisis, they might need to step in and give answers. But overall, I'd say you're probably not doing a good job of, of, of being a leader if people are looking to you for answers and looking for you, to you to innovate what's required. The system should be innovating. And as a leader, you're driving that sort of focus on the purpose and setting the frame really clearly by which people can move forward. And communication and uh, bringing out the humanity is going to be absolutely core to that. Well, I, for one, am hugely inspired by our conversation um, and creating well-being outcomes for all. A big thank you to my guest today. Thank you, Dr. Victoria Hearth. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please share it far and wide and very much looking forward to having you back here for our next episode of Brilliance Realized. <laughs>